Good morning. It is good to see you all here. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark chapter 1. On June 12, 2005, I was invited to an evening service by two young ladies who saw my friends and I playing basketball behind their church. Out of my five friends who were playing basketball with me, I was the only one to go to church that evening. And that evening, the pastor, Dr. Benny Reynolds, at Pinal Baptist Church in Palaka, Florida, preached from the book of Jeremiah. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. And he preached the gospel very clear, or as the Holy Spirit made plain to me, and the first time that I ever heard the gospel, the first time I've ever been to church at the age of 25, I came to faith that night. And the song that was playing during the invitation was the newsboys, You Are My King. And that is a song that I came forward to confess my sins, to repent of my sins, and to place my trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ for my salvation and the forgiveness of my sins before the local church. Great evening, that evening. We are going to read verses 2 through 8 and then examine them. The scripture says, beginning in verse number 2, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locust and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me... One is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. One of the most significant figures in Christian history, John the Baptist. You can walk over to your neighbor's house, and even if he is an unbeliever, and you would ask him, can you tell me something about John the Baptist? And he would be able to answer your question. Everyone has heard of John the Baptist. According to Scripture, John was the son of Zechariah, a priest. He was the the son of Elizabeth who had been previously barren. After John's birth, his father prophesied that his son would be called the prophet of the Most High. His father predicted 
that his son will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Luke chapter 1 verse 76. And although Mark does not include the story of John's birth in his gospel, he does begin with John as the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. According to Mark, John the Baptist is the forerunner. He is the one who would prepare the way for God's Messiah to come. And so John's task was to preach in the wilderness and to prepare a people group for the Messiah to come and to adopt as his people. Adopt them as his. According to Mark, the prophecy concerning John was given by Isaiah. And he's right. But, another part of that prophecy is given by Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, the prophet says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. The second part of Mark's quote is from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And Isaiah 40, verse 3 says, Thus says the Lord, the prophet, a voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So verses 2 and 3, Mark quotes two different prophets, but he claims it's only one. It's only Isaiah, but it's not. It's two different prophets. Why would he do this? Why would he claim that Isaiah wrote the prophecy when he only, in fact, wrote half of it? The other half is from Malachi. And this is important because critics use things like this to dismiss the authority of God's Word. They they use this to dismiss the inerrancy. Well, look. Mark says it's just Isaiah, but it's not. He's not telling the truth. It's also Malachi. I don't know why Mark would do this. I don't know why Mark would quote two different prophets, but only cite one of them as the author of the quote. But I know he's not the only author who does this in Scripture. For instance, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 9 and 10, Matthew says, Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, and they took thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price has been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Matthew claims to be quoting Jeremiah, and he's right, but that quote also is taken from Zechariah. So Matthew quotes two different prophets, but he only claims Jeremiah's name. Another instance of this is from 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 21. The scripture says, To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath, All the days of his desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Again, the author of 2 Chronicles 36 quotes only Jeremiah, but that part of that comes from Leviticus chapter 26. 
So Mark's not the only one who does this. Many authors of Scripture will quote two different passages, but claim only one author. Why? And here's my opinion. I believe the authors of Scripture quote two different passages, but only cite one author because their audience would be more familiar with one than the other. Mark's audience, Gentiles, they would be more familiar with Isaiah than Malachi. We do the same thing. If I stood up here and quoted a passage from Ephesians and a passage from Obadiah, you would be more familiar with the Ephesian passage. And I think that's what they're doing. It's because of their audience. They would be more familiar with prophets like Isaiah than Malachi, a prophet like Jeremiah instead of the book of Leviticus. They had that awareness about them. Let's look at the two quotes that Mark uses. The first one is from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Listen to this context. He says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God has truly paid for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. What's the context of that passage? Isaiah, speaking as God's mouthpiece, is letting the people of God know that their sins have been forgiven. They have been transferred out of a state of captivity into a state of freedom. How can we be sure that your sins are forgiven, Israel? Because the prophet says God has paid double for them. Infinite value for those sins. That's the confidence, Israel, the people of God, that you can have that God has forgiven your sins because of the value. The infinite value. God has paid double for them to be forgiven. That's the context of Isaiah 40. Now, what about Malachi chapter 3, the second part of Mark's quotation? Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. You get that? Look how Mark is using that text. Who is he claiming? Or what is he claiming here? He's claiming that John the Baptist is the Old Testament messenger that will come before who? God. God. Not just some great teacher. Not some guy who just kept the rules. He did some miracles. Not like one of the prophets. No. The context of those passages is that who's coming after the messenger? God is. And so look at what Mark is claiming here. He's not just saying John is that messenger, but what is he saying about Jesus? He's God. He's the one making those claims. It's the Son of God saying to Malachi, 
The messenger will prepare my way before me. It's the Son of God saying through Isaiah that I pay double for your sins. It's, it's, it's Christ saying those things. Through the years, there have been many heresies concerning the divine nature of Christ. I know last week we talked about why is it necessary for the mediator to be both God and man? We talked about those things. Why is it necessary that he had the one that had to pay the price for our sins? Why he had to be both God and man? This week, we're going to address two things. One, we're going to address the divine nature of Christ in and of itself. How you can be sure, how you can have confidence that Jesus is divine. And the second part, not so lovely, we're going to talk about repentance. So let's get the good one out of the way first, right? Why is Jesus divine? How can you have confidence when you approach others and communicate with others and have conversations, those who deny the divinity of Christ, because people do today. He's just a good teacher. He's just a role model. He's my co-pilot. He's my wingman. Great human. But no. He is divine. He is God. Three reasons why you can be confident that Jesus is God. Here are the three, and then we'll talk about them. Number one, because he shares the same honors due to God. Because he shares the same honors that are due to God. Secondly, you can be confident in the divinity of Christ is because he possesses the same attributes as God. He possesses the same attributes as God. And the third reason why you can be confident that Jesus is God is because he's called by the same names as God. And we, we, we hit on these earlier in our order of service, and, and I'll point them out. So first, let's... Let's talk about, let's examine the first reason why Jesus is divine. And you can have confidence that he is God in human flesh is because he shares the same honors due to God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, one of the greatest doxologies in Scripture is written by King David. And he says, blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory. That's the, that is the honors that David gives to God. And, and you can see that in the Old Testament. The writers claim numerous times the great glory, the great honor, the great grace, the great praise, the great blessings they heap upon God. Because he deserves it. And it's not just in one moment in time. It's forever and ever. All glory, all power is due to your name, O God. You see that a lot in the Old Testament. You see that written about Jesus in the New Testament too. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. The apostle says, So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. 
If you take 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 and 11, and you put them right beside 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, they're saying the same thing. All honor, all glory, forever, due to God and due to Jesus Christ, all dominion, all power, not just at one time, but forever and ever and ever. Amen. Guys and ladies, the New Testament was written by Jews. These men believed if you ascribed to another man what only belonged to God, that was blasphemy. They believed that. If you said a mere man was glorified, exalted, and blessed, and, and all-powerful, has all dominion forever and ever, blasphemy, they would say. But they have no problem saying that about Jesus. Why? Because they believed he was God. That's why. Secondly, how can we be certain that Jesus is God in flesh, that he is God, is because he shares the same attributes as God? The New Testament claims that Jesus is eternal, that he is infinite in being. He is infinite in person. He is eternal. He is uncreated. In John chapter 8, before the Jews, Jesus says to them, before Abraham was, I am. How can Jesus be before Abraham if he's not even 50 years old, the crowd says? Because he existed before his incarnation. According to John 1, Jesus is the exact same one that dwelt with God from the beginning. At the beginning, he was with God, face to face, with him. Since God the Father is eternal and infinite, self-existing, and the Son was with him, what do you think John's claiming? That Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal, infinite, self-existing. Because they share the same attributes. The same attributes that the Old Testament authors said about God, the New Testament authors say about Christ. But this one takes the cake right here. Isaiah chapter 6. We read it earlier. Take your Bibles and, and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. This one right here, Amos said that this passage reveals deep things about God. Oh, it does. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, what's the next? I saw the Lord. Remember that. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I saw him. And he was sitting on a throne. He was lofty and exalted. The train of his road filled the temple. He saw the seraphim flying back and forth saying, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. How holy is the Lord that even the seraphim who don't have original sin still had to cover their eyes. They still had to cover their feet. Remember, angels are not born according to Adam's 
generation. They, they don't have original sin. But even God is so much holier than they that they just can't bear to look at Him. And they say, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of His glory. And Isaiah is humbled. Right? And he is in the presence of God and God's holiness and righteousness. But the Lord covers Isaiah's iniquity and he commands him. And he says to him in verses 9 and 10, look at your scripture. God commands him to go to Israel and say to them, keep on listening, but you do not perceive. Keep on looking, but you do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. If you're familiar with the New Testament, Jesus says that same verse. He quotes it. He quotes it in John chapter 12. As Jesus is preaching to the mob, they reject him. They turn their back. And Jesus quotes That passage, he says, well does the scripture say of you, well does Isaiah say of you. And he quotes the blinding their eyes, the hardening their heart, that they would not, although they have eyes that they cannot see, although they have ears to hear, they cannot hear. And John chapter 12 also says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see on that throne? Who did he see? You can say it. Yeah. He sure did. He saw him. Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted. I saw him. The train filled the whole temple. Uh, The seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. I was in his presence. I knew my sin. And scripture says, the Lord that he saw was the Son of God. They share the same attributes. They share the same attributes. Third, why you can be confident in Jesus' divine nature, that He is God, is because He and God share the same titles. They do. Jesus' name, according to the Gospel of Matthew, means... God is my salvation. Yahweh saves. In the Old Testament, who is the Savior of Israel? He's God. He's the Savior. Yahweh saves. Jesus in the New Testament is called, literally, Yahweh saves. He's referred to as Emmanuel, which is God with us. He is called Lord. He is called King of Kings. Nebuchadnezzar. He's called King of Kings. He is called Lord of Lords. He's called the I Am. He is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the last. All those names are said in the Old Testament about God. Every one of them. And the authors of the New Testament take those same names, they move it, and they place it on the head of Christ. Because he shares the same titles as God. Why? Because he's God. Jesus shares the same names. He shares the same attributes. He has the same glory and honor. Don't tell me Scripture does not claim Jesus is God. The only way you can come to that conclusion, 
that Jesus isn't God from the test, from the scripture, is if one, you're an unbeliever, or two, you can't read. That's it. There's no other possible scenario out there. Either you are an unbeliever, or you just can't read. That's why the divinity of Christ is a hallmark of the Christian faith. Like, that right there alone is a divider between believers and unbelievers. The divinity of Christ, it separates the Christian faith from all the other faiths, along with some other things like justification by faith, the creation account, Christ as mediator, the sufficiency, inerrancy, uh, and, and infallibility of the word, the second coming, that Christ is really coming back. All those things are the dividing, between, dividing wall between believers and unbelievers. And look at how Mark is using those passages from the Old Testament. In verses 2 and 3, Mark is quoting two Old Testament passages that do two things. One, they predict someone is coming. A voice is crying out to prepare God's people to meet who? God. And guess who comes walking on the scene? And John points to him. There's a reason why uh, we'll get there. Anyway, he points to Christ and says he is the one who's fulfilling. Mark is saying he's the one that's on the heels of John the Baptist, of that messenger. Old Testament claimed it was God. Here he is. Here he is. And so Mark is using these two Old Testament passages to claim that Jesus is God. But Mark is also using these two Old Testament passages to tell us that Jesus isn't some afterthought. That he isn't just another option in God's plan. That, you know, something happened in the Old Testament. God's plan went awry and God, oh, I gotta do something on the fly here. Oh, I don't know. I'll just send my son in my place. No. Mark is saying this is the plan all along. This is it. This is all that we have. This is all that we need. There is no plan B. This is God's redemptive plan. And Mark's telling you, it's from of old. Nothing's changed. Nothing's gone awry. God hasn't quickly had to adjust. No. Jesus and his work is the exact same plan that God revealed in the Old Testament. Mark is also using these Old Testament scriptures to tell us what kind of ministry Jesus will have. Right? He will actually be the way of salvation. There will be nothing about mysticism. There won't be a system of rules in place that you have to keep in order to be saved. It's not a plan in theory. It's an actual plan of salvation made possible by God. That's it. And that's why he uses these texts. To reveal to you that Jesus is God. His plan of redemption is the same plan of redemption as God's. And that his ministry, his work is the actual way. Well, what about John's ministry? The Old Testament passages reveal the type of ministry that John will have. The scripture says that John's ministry was in the wilderness. Well, what's the big deal about that? 
Well, for 300 years, God's voice was silent in Israel. After the close of the Old Testament, there was no prophet of God. There was no voice. There was no one coming and, and addressing God's people sent from God. No, God was silent for 300 years. There hasn't been a prophet in Israel. So John's voice, John's ministry, his appearance in the wilderness was the most significant event in the life of Israel at that time. The most significant event. God's been quiet. Life has been going. They're waiting for God's promises to come about. No voice has been heard. And finally, here's a voice, and it's coming from the wilderness. Why is that a big deal? Because Scripture in the Old Testament repeatedly represents the wilderness as a place of repentance and of God's grace. Repeatedly. The book of Exodus. Israel's time in the wilderness. Yeah, it was a time of their sin and their ignorance, but it was also a time of God's presence, God's grace, and God's mercy. Think of the tabernacle. Every piece in that tabernacle represented God and the plan of their salvation. God pillar of fire at night, the pillar of cloud by day, represents God's presence among Israel. Hosea, speaking backwards about their time in Israel, he says in 13 verse 5, I care for you in the wilderness and the land of drought. The land of drought, God says, I cared for you then. Isaiah 51, 3, indeed the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and a sound of a melody. So here's John the Baptist coming to the wilderness, preparing the people for God to come in human flesh. That sounds like joy and gladness to me. Isaiah 42.11, let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voices, the settlements of Keter inhabit, let the inhabitants of Salish sing aloud, let them shout for joy from the tops of the mountains. The voice coming from the wilderness. Isaiah 43.19, behold, I will do something new, now it will spring forth, will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the land of the desert. Jeremiah 31.2, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel, when it went to find its rest. And remember, these people that were coming out to John the Baptist in the wilderness, they knew what they were expecting to find. They knew these Old Testament passages that we just read and I just quoted to you. That's why when they come out and saw John, what did they say to him? What did they ask him? Are you the Christ? Because that's what they were expecting to find in the wilderness. Because God, through his prophets, predicted that his salvific grace, his peace, his presence will first begin when the Messiah comes in the desert places. And Mark addresses John not as the Christ. As the people come out, are you the one? No. He's just the forerunner. He is just the messenger. And he points this out by revealing his clothes and his diet, which should bring to mind the Jews, the prophet Elijah. 
And so they should know that why he what he looks like and and what he eats that. No, he's not the Christ. He's simply Elijah, the one who comes before the Christ. But John, I'm sorry, but Mark does not explicitly make that connection between John and Elijah until later in Mark chapter nine. But the people know this. They know. They look at John and they hear John say, no, I'm not the Messiah. They put two and two together. He must be a prophet. And so the one that he's preparing, he's not here yet, but he's right on the heels. So John's ministry is a ministry of humility. It is a ministry that proclaims God's plan of redemption. It's also a ministry of repentance and baptism. Next week, I'll talk about baptism. I'll compare John's baptism to Jesus' baptism. We'll discuss why Jesus was baptized. But to close our time out this morning, I want to address the other part of John's ministry. The ministry of repentance. First thing about repentance that you need to know, and this is huge, Repentance is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Romans 2.4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul asks a rhetorical question. God's not, even though you're a sinner and you continue to sin, God isn't good to you because to encourage you to continue in that sin. No, God's goodness is so that you would turn from that sin. Not that you would continue that you would repent. Repentance is a gift from God. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So a man can only repent if God grants that to him. In the book of Acts. Why did the Apostle Peter baptize Cornelius and his household full of Gentiles? Because he says it was obvious that God has granted them repentance. It was obvious. And so we baptize them after that. So repentance is a gift from God. It cannot be manufactured by the human will. According to our sin nature, we do not possess the desire to turn. We, we want to keep going. We don't possess the will to have genuine remorse. That can only be granted to us by God's grace. And since repentance is a gift from God, it describes a heart that's changed, a heart that has remorse for his sins. Repentance has to be a sign of regeneration. It has to be a fruit of regeneration. If, if you can't repent prior to being a Christian, because you can't manufacture that according to the sin nature, and repentance is a gift from God, and it's a result of a changed heart, therefore, repentance has to be fruit of regeneration. It's how you know you're saved. How, how do I know I'm saved? How do I know, I, I, how can I have confidence that I'm a child of God? Because I repent of my sins. Because I have godly sorrow. True repentance 
describes a sinner who is sorry for his sins. Not someone who merely got caught. Not someone who's afraid of the consequences. I mean, we see uh, criminals after criminals stand before the judge and, Ah, you Lord, I'm sorry. You know, have mercy on me. Why? Because he don't want to get sentenced to 25 years in prison. He's humbled by the consequences. He's not humbled by the sin. A sinner who has been truly converted from his former life repents of that former life. His heart and his mind has been changed. It isn't sadness over being caught. It isn't sadness or fear of the consequences. Remember after King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and and murdered her husband Uriah? Nathan the prophet comes to the king and he tells him a story about a poor man who had one little lamb. And some rich guy come along and took that lamb from him. David was incensed. He was at it. Find that man and kill him for his sin. Nathan, you're the guy. Okay. But he says, (laughs) okay. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, I have sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51, which is traditionally attributed to David after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. No excuses. Sincere repentance is not, well, Lord, you know, she's beautiful, she was on the roof, you know, I was home, she was home, why not? Her husband, I had to murder him, I, I tried to get him drunk, so he'd go home and sleep with his wife so that he would think the baby's his. Come on, Lord, I had to do what I had to do. No excuses, no defense, I sinned against you, Lord, and I am sorry. Another sign of genuine repentance, not just godly sorrow, Confronting the Lord with your sin, but not using terms like bad decisions. And that was just a mistake. No, no, it was sin. It was sin. You broke God's law. You sinned against your creator, against heaven and earth. The man, uh, the, the one that has the power to cast the body into hell. You sinned against him. They weren't bad decisions. I remember the, the old song by Francesca Battistelli. I have a few dents in my fenders. I have some rips in my jeans. No, you don't. No, they're not a fender bender. No, you defy the living God. Remember what David said to the, to the Jews, uh, pointing to the Philistines? They're defying the living God. They're not just making, you know, that guy's just not, Goliath not made a bad mistake. He defied the living God. A sign of genuine repentance is that you don't make excuses, you don't make a defense, you don't use terms like, ah, oh, it's just a, you, you minimize it, right? You know, it's just a bad decision, it's just a mistake. No, that's minimizing it. Those who have true repentance don't minimize their sins. Now, what does this say about repentance then? If repentance is a fruit of regeneration, if repentance is a sin against God, it's an acknowledgement of sin against God, according to Mark, it's for the forgiveness of your sins. You can't repent, or you can't have forgiveness of your sins unless you repent. What does that make repentance then? Vital to the Christian faith. Absolutely vital. 
You don't have the Christian faith if you take repentance away from it. You don't. You don't. Repentance is an inward matter. It is a, a, It takes place in the seat of the heart. It cannot be manufactured by works. It's a fruit of regeneration. It's vital to the Christian faith. And that's how you know that you're saved. It's, it's how you know, it's how you have confidence that you're a believer, that you're a part of the family of God. Because of repentance, because you, you sincerely repent of your sins. So let me ask you these questions. Let me ask you these questions. And hopefully these questions, the answers do one of two things. One, they give you confidence and assurance. You say, yes, 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 yes. I have confidence. I have assurance then of my salvation. If you say no, 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 then you need to repent of your sins and come to Christ for salvation. Right? So here we go. Do you know that when you sin, you don't sin against me, you don't sin against your neighbor, right? David didn't sin against Bathsheba. He didn't sin against Uriah. Who did he sin against? The Lord. Your sins are against the Lord. Do you know that? Number two, are you sorry for that? Does guilt, remorse come over you? I offended the one who loves me. I offend the one who created me and loves me and has done all these things to have this relationship, to make this way. I sinned against him, and I am sorry for that. Have you confessed those sins to the Lord? Not to me. Not to some other member of the clergy. Not to your neighbor. Have you confessed those sins to the Lord? Another question. Do you desire to break away from that sin? I, I, I don't want to do that no more. Lord, help me. Help me to stop doing these things. I, I, that's a part of my sin nature. Not, not the new man. The new nature doesn't want to do those things, Lord. Do you have a desire to break away from those sins? Last question. Do you hate that sin? Despise it? Want to put it away from you? Right? If it's a certain sin, you will do like Jesus says, you know, if it's your eye, cut it out. If it's your hand, cut it out. He doesn't really literally mean, right? It's a euphemism to say, hey, do what it takes to get it out of your life. Right? Get off the internet. If that's what it takes, are you willing to do that because you hate that sin? If your answers are yes, I am confident that you possess saving faith. Confident. Because that, all those answers of yes don't come from you. They're granted to you. They're taught to you by the Spirit. And if your answer is no to those questions... You need to repent. You need to understand that your ability, your works, is the reason why you're in this predicament. The reason why you're here. The reason why you're dead in sin. It's because of sin. Your nature leading you astray from your mother's womb. 
lived a sinless, a sinful life. And the only way to have that forgiven is to trust in the righteousness of Christ. To say, he is the only one that possesses the necessary righteousness to appease God's anger against me. That's it. No one else possesses it. Only Christ possesses the necessary righteousness for God to remove his anger from me. I pray that you take that under consideration this morning. And as we take the Lord's Supper and, and, you, and you think about those things, and I am not saved, I have not made a profession of faith, that after the service today, you would come up to one of our elders and you would, you would claim that good news so that we can help you with the next steps. Because that's not all, right? Oh, well, I said I'm sorry and God forgave me. Whoop, I'm good. No. No. And we'll talk about the next step next week when we talk about baptism. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have such a great gift. The gift of your Son, the gift of faith, the gift of knowledge, the gift of repentance, the gift of baptism. These things, Lord, aren't our gift to you. And they're your reward. No, no, no. No, they're, they're your gift to us, and they're our reward. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us to repent of our sins, Lord. Even the things that we, we think don't matter in the grand scheme, they're, they're still sins. There is no little white lie. They're just bad sins. And Lord, I pray that the men of our church would, would model repentance in our home, that the women of our church, they would model repentance in their home. I pray that the older men would teach repentance to the younger men, and the older women would teach repentance to the younger women. Lord, that our church would be reconciled to Christ, that we would enjoy the forgiveness of sins, Lord, the benefits of our salvation, the forgiveness of sins the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, eternal life, knowledge of salvation, all these gifts of the benefits of salvation. Lord, give them to your church. May we enjoy these things. And, and as we pray and preach the word, sit under the word and participate in the Lord's Supper, may the Holy Spirit, Lord, use these means of grace to communicate the truth of the gospel to our hearts every day so that our faith and our confidence in Christ would grow. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.